The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Anna Hickey, Associate Editor for Communications, with an episode of Rational Security for January 14th, 2024. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare is cross-posting this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news. Today's episode is entitled The Courtroom Drama Edition. In the episode, Anderson and Jurassic sat down with Natalie Orpet to discuss South Africa's allegations before the International Court of Justice that Israel violated the Genocide Convention the Supreme Court's decision to hear former President Trump's appeal of a Colorado Supreme Court ruling that disqualifies him from the 2024 primary ballot, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spending several days in the hospital earlier this month without notifying the White House, and more. This is Rational Security. So the fact we're recording remotely, I assume, means that we've all been washed out by the torrential downpours of the last 48 hours. We're, like, separated by rivers. I saw a couple of puddles yesterday when I was walking my dog, and I almost panicked. There was real rain. It was a lot of rain. Yeah, I am. I am currently well south of of DC, and uh, there there was like some serious rain and flooding over here. It was no joke. This was the sort of weather where in my old neighborhood we would come back and find like our understair area flooded and all our Amazon packages just floating in like a foot of water <laughs> that we then have to like get a pool skimmer to pull out that we bought just for this purpose to pull out of the puddle of water <laughs> and try and salvage. So, you know, it's a real thing. Parts of D is still a swamp. You know, the water level is never too far away here in Washington, D.C. So it, it catches up with us in circumstances like this. There's an interesting Washington Post piece a few weeks ago mapping the floodplain. And oh. I think what it referred to as ghost rivers or zombie rivers or zombie streams or something like that. It sounded cooler than it was. It was basically like <laughs> areas that used to be streams but are not anymore because stuff was built on top of them. Um, it wasn't, you know, a river of zombies or anything oh. like that. But but essentially... Not, not yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Just wait for it. But when, when it rains heavily, those are the areas that, that tend to flood. It was pretty interesting. All right. All right. I retract my making fun of DC and its inability to, to deal with not even quite severe weather. Because it sounds like true. if you do not live on Capitol Hill where I live, that perhaps the rain was a bit more serious than the couple of several inch puddles that I saw. Yeah, Natalie, it's in the name. You're on a hill. That's true. Yeah, Fair exactly. Enough. Exactly. That's just good real estate buying, guys. 
<laughs> I did. I, I I am in the up upper hill half of my neighborhood, and I will say it's a big difference if you go downhill a little bit. It gets real flooded to the point that they've been like digging a giant underground tunnel for the last three years, involving one of those giant ground borers, which is a very cool thing to watch. Uh, if you have a two year old and a three year old walking by occasionally, so it appears to be kind of a problem, but we're dealing with it. DC not good on the weather front, admittedly. I'm excited about this tunnel news because, as I'm hoping to talk about in object lessons, I'm newly obsessed with. Tunnel tunnels are really in the news these days in ways that are weird but i would just really like to celebrate the fact that we just intellectualized the weather with references to the news and articles about underground architecture (laughs) yeah mostly quinta but that's fine (laughs) (laughs) well thank god we have quinta here Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the virtual studio with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And standing in the stead of the dearly departed, may he always be remembered, Alan Rosenstein, we are thrilled to be joined once again by Lawfare's executive editor, Natalie Orpit. Natalie, thank you for joining us once again here on Rational Security. Why, thank you. But I shall never, ever aspire to fill the great shoes of Alan Rosenstein. His shoes, I don't think anybody wants to get near his shoes, I suspect. It's, it's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a large man. He does a lot of walking. Uh, it's dangerous. We didn't even make you put on your Allen beard and your Allen wig on this time. Instead, we're just letting Natalie not even try to fill Allen's shoes and roll in this in this podcast. Um, well, we're, we're excited to have you on because uh, we, of course, have had a number of developments in national security news these past few weeks, which we are going to get to. A lot happening in the courtrooms, courtrooms here in the United States, courtrooms abroad courtrooms uh, perhaps coming down the pike and for that reason we are calling this the courtroom drama edition of rational security as we dig through some of the drama in these big big cases um, that promise to change the trajectory of the 2024 election perhaps in one case of major armed conflict in another case and uh, we're thrilled to have you here to talk them over with us natalie for our first topic ergo omnes South Africa has brought Israel to the International Court of Justice for actions relating to its military campaign in Gaza, based on a novel legal theory that alleges Israeli violations of the Genocide Convention and asserts standing by virtue of the universal obligation to prevent genocide. What practical impact is this litigation likely to have, and what does it mean as a precedent for the international community? Topic two, certs in doom petition. The Supreme Court has officially taken up former President Trump's appeal of a Colorado Supreme Court decision disqualifying him from the 2024 ballot there on the grounds that he is ineligible to hold office. While some have welcomed the chance to nationalize Colorado's holding, others have warned that doing so could be a grave blow to popular democracy. How will the matter play out and what does it mean for the 2024 election and after? In topic three, void Austin. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spent several days in the hospital earlier this month without notifying the White House, leaving what some believe was a gaping hole at the highest level of the U.S. military chain of command. How big a problem was this actually? What steps should be taken in response? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So as you mentioned, Scott, South Africa has brought a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice, which we should clarify is different from the International Criminal Court. Um, alleging breaches. Finally, of- somebody says it <laughs> in the mainstream media, no less ish. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, rational, rational security counts as, as mainstream media these days. Finally, getting it right. <laughs> um, alleging breaches of the Convention Against Genocide, and in addition, requesting that the case move forward on an expedited basis, and also 
that uh, the court call on Israel to stop actions in Gaza that South Africa is alleging breached the Genocide Convention while the action is pending. Um, So the specifics of the application allege that what Israel is currently doing in Gaza amounts to genocide because, and I quote, they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnic group. And the acts in question include killing Palestinians in Gaza, causing them serious bodily and mental harm, and inflicting on them conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction. There is a lot going on here um, in terms of what this means institutionally for the ICJ, um, what is going on with the jurisdictional issue. You know that this is a podcast for nerds because that was actually the first question that I wrote down. Let's start with the question of what the implications are, and then I do want to move to the merits before we get to the spicy, spicy jurisdictional questions. Natalie, what do you make of this? Is this likely to have any effect? So I think that question sort of depends on the nature in which you are looking for impact, because as we know, the International Court of Justice is on the one hand, quite powerful in the sense that it is widely respected. It is a place where states are brought in a manner that no other court can accomplish. On the other hand, it doesn't have any real enforcement powers. And so in a certain way, its judgments are sort of a statement of global foreign policy um, or approbation or a way in which to come up with, in some cases, purely advisory opinions about what a dispute, how a dispute should be resolved. But again, it has no enforcement powers. So there are many, many occasions over the course of history where states who have a judgment against them don't really do what they're supposed to do according to the court's ruling. That said, I think that there is an impact by the fact of having the case and having the hearings Um, A lot of information will come out. Israel and South Africa are both forced to make their case, you know, not purely in the media or in statements before the General Assembly or something like that. They're, They're forced to sort of construct around legal arguments what they are claiming. Um, So it is a way to air this discussion with a structure that really can't be found elsewhere. I think it's worth I think that's all right and it's worth thinking about actually what this posture of this matter is procedurally and what's being asked for at this particular stage because it, this is particular hearing that's going to happen this Thursday and Friday in The Hague uh, where the ICJ is located centers on something called provisional measures. And that is kind of like the equivalent of what in US law we think of as a preliminary injunction usually, or certain other forms of kind of preliminary relief. The idea is to say, okay, there is a determination, there is a matter here, there is a dispute that is at least colorably within the court's jurisdiction. Interestingly, like that ties back to the jurisdictional question, which we'll get to in a minute, which is part of the more controversial aspect of this case. But it's really essential to that, to understanding why this is kind of a novel case to be brought. But essentially, they're saying, we are asking for, we are saying, arguing, meaning South Africa, that there is a serious chance that Israel is violating these obligations or the risk of it. And we're asking for certain measures to be implemented that will limit the risk of that getting further until we can litigate out exactly what Israel's obligations are in this regard. Notably, in other recent cases in Gambia v. Myanmar uh, and in the Ukraine versus Russia, 
we've seen plaintiff states, uh, and in Gambia, it was it was similar to here, a third party state uh, using a similar jurisdictional theory, be able to argue and persuade the court essentially that matters ongoing, while they couldn't make a firm decision that this was in fact an act of genocide or otherwise violative of the genocide convention, that there was enough signs that something was happening in that direction, that certain provisional measures were in fact warranted. And that seems, my guess is that's what actually like the most practical outcome of this is likely to be certainly in the near term, which is some of the provisional measures being asked for are things like access to Israel for different types of investigatory missions by UN bodies. It also it raises the issue as to whether or not why people who are making genocidal statements, there's, you know, in the press, we've seen members of the governing coalition even make pretty horrible statements about what should happen to the Palestinians that you could construe as genocidal in certain cases, or, or at least drifting in that direction. And the Genocide Convention says, in fact, you're supposed to be punishing those people who make those sorts of statements. That the United States that raises First Amendment issues in some cases, you know, it, it's it's the question about how that actual obligation gets implemented domestically in different legal systems. But there's a compelling case to be made. Well, at least if nothing else, if it's a member of the governing coalition, you should be countermanding them, saying no, this is not the public position, uh, condemning them, taking other measures, even if maybe you can't legally punish them. Make clear it's not actually the policy. That's in Israel's legal interest now because they have to going to have to defend its conduct, and you know it's also potentially a provisional measure that might be imposed. The provisional measures can range all the way up to saying, "Hey, Israel, stop your legal, stop your military campaign." I doubt it will go that far for the simple reason that Israel's campaign here is is rooted in self-defense, and self-defense is a right under the UN Charter that the UN institutions of which ICJ is one. Uh, specifically says nothing the ICJ, UN institutions do, nothing in the UN Charter shall intrude upon the inherent right to self-defense. It's kind of a pre-existing international law right. So there's going to be some limits, I suspect, the court will see in how much it can direct Israel to not take actions that are genuinely in its self-interest. But might it be able to say things like, let's get humanitarian access to Gaza, bring in more assistance, end you know, starvation and other measures that are being pursued in Gaza, or at least are the consequences of measure being pursued, if not the deliberate policy being advanced, they might say that. And then the question gets back to what Natalie's getting at, which is like, to what extent can this actually be enforced? And it's true, there's no direct enforcement mechanism, but these decisions can enter into the political calculus meaningfully for certain states, particularly European states, um, which do actually even see themselves as having an international legal obligation to enforce them to some extent in many cases. Um, a lot of third-party states actually feel that way, not just uh, Europe. I believe New Zealand uh, tends to approach ICJ judgments that's a way, as do other countries, a number of other countries. And even where they don't see like an obligation to automatically enforce ICJ, like the United States certainly doesn't, because it doesn't agree with the ICJ in many cases, it is a talking point. It is a point that they can go to the Israelis or other people and say, look, we got to push back in this direction because you're getting the whole international community riled up against you and other states are going to be doing more draconian things. We need to take this seriously. So I actually think it could be a meaningful step around these provisional measures. Then there's the much bigger question of what is there actually going to be a finding of Israel having committed genocide? I'm much more dubious about that actually on the merits. But at this provisional measure stage, the bar is much lower. And I think you really could see some provisional measures come out of this that are substantive and meaningful. Particularly if they're married with some sort of enforcement effort by member states. So, what do you both make of the claim by South Africa that Israel's actions in Gaza constitute a genocide? This is something that has been 
raised in, I think, more and less rigorous ways sort of since the beginning of Israel's campaign in Gaza. Um, But I think it's, you know, it's not worth brushing off entirely. It has been made by serious scholars, including by uh, some serious Israeli scholars who have argued that if it isn't genocide, it is on the path there. Obviously, this is a pretty serious allegation, (laughs) and I think that uh, Israel seems to be taking it seriously, perhaps for that reason. So, Natalie, I'm curious for your read here. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an area where the specificities of what constitutes a war crime versus a crime against humanity versus a violation of the Genocide Convention becomes actually quite important to the extent that this case as it is, is under the Genocide Convention. So the the Genocide Convention, I think it's probably just worth our saying explicitly. What it forbids is, and I'll quote, um, intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. So one of the things that's really, really important about the Genocide Convention is that the attempt has to be to destroy the group, not to destroy individuals who happen to all be part of the same group. So the intent aspect is the hardest thing to prove in a genocide case. There's one thing that as I was preparing for this last night, um, I was reading analysis by an expert in the Holocaust and who is sort of a historian of various types of genocides. One thing that he explained that I was not familiar with before that I think is interesting is, so there's a separate crime, not really well-defined, specifically under any international convention known as ethnic cleansing, which I think we've referenced a little bit. It's sort of generally under the heading of a crime against humanity. But what that means is it's about removing people from territory that you want, Um, So genocide is destroying the group no matter where it is. Ethnic cleansing is sort of getting rid of a group. And this scholar was talking about the sort of potentially slippery slope between ethnic cleansing and genocide in um, certain examples in history where what began as ethnic cleansing or what what was properly construed as ethnic cleansing in the beginning really became genocide by virtue of the way in which it was conducted. So some of the examples were like the Ottomans removed Armenians from their territory, but pushed them into the desert where it was all but certain that they would essentially all die. And then another example was what the Germans did, I think, in the early 20th century to the Herero people in Namibia, where they not only push people off of their land, but also push them into a desert and filled all of the water holes. So these were examples of something turning into genocide, even if the sort of framework, especially of intent, was a little bit harder to demonstrate up front. I do think that these are the arguments that will come up. Yeah, I agree with all that. And and I, I may be willing to to put the, the line down a, a little hard on this. I think it's really unlikely Israel would be found actually guilty of particularly like acts of genocide themselves. Bearing in mind that's not that. the only things in violation of the genocide convention. You know, the biggest barrier here is that like it's a very, very high mens rea threshold. It is a, your intent. What were you intending? You have to have this genocidal intent and proving it. You've got a handful of statements from members of the governing coalition that are highly problematic. Again, this is 
Israel has done this to itself by allowing these statements to hang out there without countermanding them. Uh, it's something that Bibi Netanyahu has kind of no doubt felt he's had to do for domestic political reasons, but it's a problem. And then, of course, you have like the fact that they've had a pretty brutal military campaign on a lot of fronts and that there are, I think, much more stronger claims that they very well may have committed crimes against humanity or war crimes in different contexts. But genocide is a very, very specific type of unlawful action. The reason this is being brought as a genocide action, again, gets back to that jurisdictional hook issue. It's both basically to get to it briefly before we talk about it more length. It, it is to get at it, uh, to get it to the ICJ. It had to be a genocide related violation, a genocide convention violation, because that's the only way to get jurisdiction. There's no comparable convention that provides ICJ jurisdiction for those other crimes. And so it is a little bit of a dodge uh, to pull it in. And it's a controversial one. I mean, it's understandable why Israel, a country founded in the legacy and the aftermath of the Holocaust, and very much as a response to the horrors of the Holocaust, um, which is the same genocide that drove the creation of the Genocide Convention, is now, you know, to be bring allegations against them for similar acts is pretty dramatic and understandably controversial. But I think in this case, it was seen as the only route to really access this international justice system. And while I am highly dubious that they will actually succeed at proving at the in the end a merits case, again, the bar for provisional measures is much lower as the ICJ has applied it for the last 10 years. Like the ICJ has been willing to say, we're going to direct provisional measures if there is a you know substantial risk or a reasonable basis for believing there may be violations of these relevant international legal obligations. They did it very recently in Ukraine and Russia in a way a lot of countries celebrated, right? Um, we saw it, uh, they're debating similar measures in Gambia v. Myanmar. And like these are the ICJ is clearly confident and comfortable doing taking these sorts of steps and the bar is just much lower there. And so it creates a, a strategic incentive to say, well, if we can build a, at least a colorable case that there's genocide here, even if we lose at the end, that's three or four years down the road in between we can get these provisional measures in place that may actually try and curb Israeli conduct or build political pressure to curb different types of Israeli actions that are most problematic because they could be read as an act of genocide or contributing to genocide in some way. But they probably are also contributing to war crimes or crimes against humanity or just generally military action that we're not comfortable with, even if it might be lawful. Uh, and therefore, this is built pressure against those and another avenue for that sort of campaign. But that doesn't mean they're going to win on the genocide in the end, but they also don't need to to get what they want. So let's let's talk about the jurisdictional issues. Finally. <laughs> it's finally <laughs> if coming If you look up. at a map, you may notice South Africa. It's not anywhere near Israel. Why Why are they able to bring this case in the first place? So it all comes back to the pun that we had in our subject header, <laughs> which I said ergo omnes, but really it's ergo omnes is the concept. I said ergo. That's it's the like quality ergo. of the wordplay that you get That's on national wordplay. security. We're doing it in Latin now, uh, which I do not know. So apologies if I messed that up. Erga, and the, it both has the idea of an ergo omnes obligation. This is the idea that there are certain obligations in international law that are owed to the entire international community, and that the entire international community has a cognizable legal interest in seeing the compliance with by all other members of the international community, all other states. There's a handful of interest in this way, uh, of legal interest, that not all international legal violations, most are not erga omnes violations, but there's a whole handful that have kind of like states and practitioners and international legal scholars have kind of said, no, this is probably like so foundational um, and so widely subscribed to that it is an erga omnes obligation, and genocide is one of them. Um, so is aggression, uh, the prohibition against aggression and a handful of other kind of violations, right? 
And so we saw a few years ago in the Gambia v. Myanmar case, a case where Gambia, a country, again, very far from Myanmar, not a lot to do with Myanmar, uh, initiate action actually, actually on behalf of a number of states uh, that are part of the organization of the Islamic Conference, uh, which kind of initiated this particular litigation, suing Myanmar in the ICJ on the theory that they're committing genocide against the Rohingya population there, and that in doing so, they are violating Erga Amna's obligations, and that the, these countries, these OIC members, have an obligation, or at least the, the legal standing, to bring a claim before the ICJ. And then importantly, in alleging violation of the Genocide Convention, the Genocide Convention is one of the few widely subscribed to international treaties that includes in it an ICJ jurisdiction provision. This was very common in the years right after World War II, but because states, and particularly the United States and a couple other powerful states, started finding themselves with greater friction with the ICJ throughout the 70s and onward, we saw most treaties exclude these provisions that were concluded later, or they would be concluded through separate protocols like the VCDR and VCCR, which the United States, for example, originally subscribed to and then withdrew from in subsequent years because they didn't want to subject disputes around those treaties to ICJ jurisdiction. Not many treaties are on on the books actually have this automatic turn to the ICJ. The Genocide Convention is one of them. Um, and that's why it's such an appealing avenue here, because if you can make your argument a genocide argument, then you can get to the ICJ. That's what Ukraine did with Russia. I mean, the only reason Ukraine was able to make those claims was because Russia premised its invasion of Ukraine in part on allegations of genocide against the Ukrainians. That was a real shoot yourself in the foot moment for Russia uh, because it gave the ICJ jurisdiction. And it's a similar step take happening here. The genocide argument is the basis for jurisdiction. But again, I'm I'm not sure like the strategic goal of this litigation is to win in the end. It's it's to it's to be build a credible enough case to get provisional measures um, that might make a difference in the short to medium term. And it all boils down to jurisdiction. Like the genocide convention, these allegations of genocide are necessary to get ICJ jurisdiction to get those provisional measures. But if you get provisional measures that prevent violations of genocide convention, many of them will also prevent a variety of other unlawful or otherwise objectionable actions, at least in the eyes of the people bringing this litigation and serve that instrumental purpose. One thing that I was thinking about, and I'm curious what each of your takes is, is in these proceedings, other states can intervene, actually. And I started wondering if the US would intervene. I mean, we we generally, as Scott mentioned, don't particularly love the ICJ. But I, I was wondering in this instance, I don't know, what do you guys think? I guess it's it's hard for me to see that that might happen just because this is such a political mess in the United States right now in terms of U.S. support for, for Israel. I mean, I think the Biden administration is, I don't know if they're, we're, they're still attempting the bear hug, embrace Israel in, in public, criticize them in private strategy, but there's certainly a lot of discontent within the Democratic Party over the matter. And so just as a political issue, it seems like weighing in the ICJ on either side, not not that it would weigh in on South Africa's side, is kind of a loser, but I don't know. Yeah, this question of intervention is really interesting. You know, the United States is in a little bit of a difficult position because I believe, I was just looking up to verify this, and I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, they actually argued in favor of jurisdiction in the Ukraine-Russia case, which is a very similar theory of jurisdiction here on the genocide convention front meaning like there's credible allegations here. I, I don't recall their position on the Erga Omnes violation, but there are other contexts where Russia, where the United States has been willing to lean into Erga Omnes obligations recently uh, that might make it hard for them to run away from it openly. And so it's it's a little bit of a tricky, tricky wicket for them to 
to kind of navigate. My strong suspicion is that they will file an intervention uh, in support of Israel, essentially arguing that there is no evidence of genocide here. Now, that may be tricky to navigate. I think they will say essentially echo arguments that Israel is likely to make that say essentially, look, you have the this is primarily relying upon statements by people who are not part of the war cabinet and do not direct Israeli policy in this area. There's lots of other things that Israel is doing. And it may require the kind of difficult concession that Israel likely is going to have to make saying there's a very colorable case that these are violations of other aspects of international law, but just not genocide. And that genocide shouldn't be expanded to encompass these. The hardest part of that actually for Israel and the United States will be the lesser genocide, I I feel bad saying it that way, but like the non-genocide genocide genocide convention violations, the failure to punish uh, incitement to genocide in some cases, um, you know, the potentially conspiracy, the failure to investigate conspiracy to commit genocide uh, in certain actions. Um, And so there, you know, there are ways that that are the arguments can be harder to make. But when it comes to the actual committing genocide, I think the United States will probably not, not have a trouble making that argument. But that might not be enough for the ICJ to then again say, well, there's enough scattered facts here that we will still take up provisional measures. Um, because again, the bar is just much lower there. Israel recently made, uh, I think, really interesting choice in terms of how it wants to handle this case. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, both of you, but my understanding is that um, under the ICJ, if a state that has a case... Um, against it doesn't have a judge of its nationality on the bench. It can choose a judge uh, sort of from its own pool to sit on the bench. And Israel selected um, Aharon Barak, uh, who is a retired president of the Israeli Supreme Court and is not only someone who I think it's fair to say the current government is not a fan of, um, he is the Israeli Supreme Court justice who kind of kickstarted a lot of the developments in the history of the Israeli Supreme Court that the Netanyahu government was attempting to really overthrow with the judicial reforms that have now been kind of nixed. So Barack's appointment has created a lot of discontent on the Israeli far right. But I think that the fact that the Netanyahu government chose um, him to represent Israel is a really interesting choice in a number of ways. Scott, I'm curious what you make of it. It's a really interesting step, but I think is representative of of just how seriously actually Israel is taking this action. Look, I mean, Israel initially responded to this action with what has become like a very common rhetorical move where they essentially say – this is kind of a degree of bias on behalf of the international community. Um, uh, I think these official, one of these official Israeli government spokespeople people compared it to blood libel, uh, South Africa's allegations saying it was something uh, you know akin to following in the kind of vein of the Holocaust or otherwise siding with Holocaust deniers and people echoing similar violations there. This is not like a, a total. This is a extreme, like a stronger version, but a similar rhetorical line um, that Israel often follows when it receives criticism or is the target of inter- action in the international community. They allege bias on behalf of the international community, and I think we should be. If I'm being honest, I think there is something to that in that the international community is very focused on Israel compared to historically certain other national contexts. I don't think that that necessarily is a complete defense <laughs> in all cases or sufficient to say, well, then we need to disregard these other proceedings or these allegations. And a lot of it has to do with the relationship of the United States with Israel uh, and Israel's role in the international community and a, a number of other factors. But regardless, like there is a, you know some element of merit to that argument. But I don't think it carries the day or, or is sufficient. Regardless, here they're doing something different. Like in other cases, well, after you've gotten that rhetorical move, that's it. 
Israel will then cease to participate in whatever international legal proceeding is involved. Uh, remember, Israel's been on the wrong side of the ICJ before. There was a, a wall advisory opinion about the wall Israel was building along the edge of what it viewed as the line between West Bank and Israel. But there's some d- debate about that. Uh, that came to the ICJ. My recollection is that they really did not meaningfully participate in that um, and have not really recognized or done anything with that judgment in any meaningful way. You could have seen the same thing here. Instead, they appointed a very credible international legal team and have appointed an ad hoc judge in Aaron Barak, who is very clearly intended to signal credibility to the international community. Aaron Barak is a very well-known international guy. He has spent lots of time while he was in office and certainly since leaving office teaching at American and European law schools, visiting them as frequent speakers. I met him several times when I was in law school. Um, his, his, he's kind of like a you know, every every foreign judge of prominence likes to say they're like people like to say they're the you know uh, chief justice marshal of that country, and people say that about Haron Barak, and it's probably slightly overstating it, but he is a notable jurist historically for Israel, even though he is often at loggerheads with this right wing coalition. Why do you appoint someone like that? It's because you think they're going to back you and they're going to be seen as credible to the international community. So it's a real sign of just how sophisticated an international legal actor Israel is when it wants to be, um, that it's hired these lawyers and followed their advice, no doubt, in appointing these ad hoc judge. It's worth, worth noting the judge's role is not to represent them in the proceedings. They are a judge just like the other members of the ICJ. It is simply that they are allowed to appoint an ad hoc judge in addition to the standing ICJ composition. So yeah, it, you know, it's going to be interesting. I mean, Israel is actually going to engage on this one. And they're going to have a legal defense strategy. The hard part for them is going to be it's going to require them to probably condemn some actions by members of the governing coalition and come out and say, yes, okay, these might be other sorts of violations. But uh, in the end, we're we're not going to uh, in the end, this isn't genocide. And then when it comes to provisional measures, the real question is, if the provisional measure is something like let a team in to investigate these allegations, or, or investigate like very specific concrete incidents that are seen as something that could be genocide, it's hard to de- proclaim your independence and proclaim your innocence and then completely refuse to allow transparency around investigations there. Israel may come down to that front. And I think that's going to be a hard line for them to draw persuasively, even for the United States potentially, and certainly for European allies or European countries that have backed them at least so far on on much of the military campaign in Gaza. So it's going to be a hard line for them to draw, but they're taking it seriously. And, and we will see a genuine international legal debate around all these issues with both sides well represented, which will be interesting. Well, speaking about important legal arguments with all sides well represented, let us turn our lens from the International Court of Justice to the Domestic Court of Justice, by which, of course, I mean the United States Supreme Court, uh, which just in this past week, if I recall correctly, maybe a week and a half at this point, granted certiorari in the challenge by former President Trump or the appeal by former President Trump to the Supreme Court of Colorado's determination late last year that he was ineligible to appear on the ballots in Colorado because he was ineligible to hold the office of president if elected uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. A pretty earth-shattering decision that we've talked about a bit before on the podcast. Um, But now we're seeing this new and presumably, although not necessarily, final phase where the Supreme Court will reach a determination on the merits of what Colorado has determined. And then that's going to set federal law, presumably, at least if if they don't use certain procedural dodges that will be applicable nationwide but notably does not that does not necessarily mean that it will resolve the actual underlying dispute about what happens with 2024 election ballots interestingly um it's actually this is probably a really important step but, but not actually the final step in this process 
Quinta, let me turn to you on this. You know, how should we be thinking about this in this broader timeline for resolving this particular issue, preferably before the presidential election, uh, preferably before at least uh, next January 6th, 2025, when Congress is going to have to count electoral votes uh, again, if they're allowed to do so. Hopefully they'll have more more luck this time around and uh, determine who the new president is. Put us in this procedural moment. Like, what are we living in right now? And how does this fit in the kind of timeline of things we have to think about? Yeah, this is a fun one. I have to say, um, shout out to uh, one Heyman Hahn, a lawfare's associate editor who identified the 14th Amendment uh, disqualification issue as something that we should be keeping track of on our disqualification tracker, which you can find on the lawfare website. I will say I did not anticipate that we would get here, frankly. And I'm I'm kind of stunned that we've gotten to the point where this is an issue that's before the Supreme Court. Clearly, I think the court is kind of trying to deal with this quickly. Um, so we are having oral arguments on February 8th. The briefing is due in by the end of January. That's moving quite speedily for the court. But that does mean because of where we're situated in the primary schedule that the court is going to be considering this while people are casting their votes in uh, presidential primaries and and weighing in in caucuses, which I think just points to how deeply unsettled this whole issue is. There's an argument that's been made by uh, election law scholars Rick Hassan and Ned Foley, um, which I think you were gesturing to, that this is kind of something that really needs to be addressed well before people actually head to the polls in November, simply because, first off, people does have a right to know whether or not the person that they're casting a vote for can actually hold the office. And second off, because as you you note with your reference to January 6, 2025, if we haven't resolved the issue dispositively by then, we're going to end up in a very weird situation where Congress might arguably, under the 14th Amendment, have a duty or an obligation or at least the authority to kind of step in um, and say, you know, this person can actually hold the office. Um, and I think that is a recipe, as as Ned and, and Rick have, have pointed out, um, for a potential constitutional crisis. And I do mean that in in those words, not in the kind of exaggerated way that people often refer to it. I will say I certainly, having spent some time with the briefing and the scholarship on this issue, my position at this point is the Supreme Court should just say, damn the torpedoes, he's disqualified and kind of let the chips fall where they may. I think that's the best reading of the law. The question of how that would play out is kind of a complicated one, and and we can talk about that. Um, But the long and the short of it is that unless the court sort of weighs in on the merits and says, no, he is not disqualified as a matter of the 14th Amendment, um, rather than on the many sort of procedural outs that I think they'll probably be tempted to take. This is not going away anytime soon. Like we are now in a world where it is going to be a live issue, (laughs) whether or not uh, one of the candidates for the presidency committed an insurrection and is barred from federal office. So Natalie, Quinta just mentioned this kind of slew of legal arguments and procedural outs the court has before us. Can you give us a little bit of a survey of not comprehensive, because frankly, briefs are still coming in, more arguments may yet come forward, especially because we're seeing a number of creative amicus. And this is the sort of case where everybody and their mother is going to be an amicus uh, in this particular case. Um, So we're going to see a lot more coming. 
but give us a sense of the broad contours of the different arguments and outs that we have laid out before us to get a sense of the terrain of what the Supreme Court is probably going to be focused on, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of this from a legal perspective is sort of a great example of why people hate lawyers. Um, This is like, you know, in law school, um, you know, one of your first days, I think probably of torts, but I can't remember where this comes up stereotypically. There's the, um, okay, so let's tear apart a sign on a park that says no vehicles in the park after dark. What do we mean by dark? What do we mean by vehicles? Do vehicles have to have wheels? Does a scooter count as a vehicle? What about a children's bicycle? You know, it's the the ways in which the 14th Amendment Section 3 arguments can be ripped apart is is sort of stunning. So I think this is worth just referencing because so much of the coverage of what is going to be before the Supreme Court is being really grossly misunderstood as hey, look, the Supreme Court is about to decide whether Trump committed insurrection and is therefore disqualified under the 14th Amendment. And that's, you know, maybe they will get there, but there are about a million and one reasons in which they don't have to get there, um, which I think, you know, we can talk about the procedural outs. But there are also questions in the legal analysis itself that I think it's just worth sort of mentioning. So, one of the questions, and this one is is going to be before the court so long as it uh, takes the Colorado Republican Party's um, statement of what the questions presented are, is, is the president one of the officials that the 14th Amendment even applies to? Or can you say that the office of the president actually was never supposed to be covered by this provision of the Constitution? And then another one is, is Article 3 um, of the 14th Amendment self-executing, or does Congress need to have done something since the late 1800s to actually implement it in law in some fashion? And then there's the question of, you know, would denying a party the right to choose its candidate at the primary stage of an election violate that party's rights under the First Amendment to association. And there are a ton of other arguments that really, as I said, are sort of so technical and so precise as to exactly what every word of the um, provision means and how it interacts with other laws that there's there's a lot to be said and the the Supreme Court can try to deal with it as narrowly or as broadly as it wants. Um, I think given the stakes here and given the polarization over the question, my guess is that the court will try to do its best to decide as narrowly as it can and not take the opportunity to answer all of these questions once and for all. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, and I think it's worth maybe clarifying what it is the Supreme Court is deciding technically, because I don't think it's actually as broad as a lot of people seem to be assuming. Like my, correct me if I'm wrong on this, because I'm, I, I, maybe I'm being too technical on what the court's has before it, although it could reach a little wider if it wanted to, particularly how it reaches the opinion. But the question the court has before it, I think, is as a federal law matter, does Section 3 apply to a president in former President Trump's position, uh, meaning, or a candidate in former President Trump's position, meaning he is covered by Section 3's obligation uh, and the presidency as an office is covered by the offices that people can be disqualified from, right? That's the federal law question. And then there's this factual question that the Colorado trial court reached, which saying that Trump did, in fact, commit insurrection, meaning it triggered the prohibition that's installed by Section 3. That's a factual question. The Supreme Court doesn't do facts. The Supreme Court here is essentially reviewing whether the district court's conclusion on that effect and the Colorado Supreme Court's conclusion that the district court was well-founded in that effect you know, didn't commit a clear error. It's on a fairly deferential standard. Uh, that's what it would be in a federal trial court. I think it's the same here, saying it would have to be clear error that they reach a contrary conclusion. But that actually doesn't necessarily translate into, as a matter of federal law, he's disqualified from the ballot in all 50 states. First, different states, the, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually only covers eligibility to hold or to be president or to hold office, not to appear on the ballot or not. So, you know, there's, as we've no- noted, there's like this issue of state law. States could choose to put ineligible people on their ballots if they want to, I think, as a matter of state law. Um, and maybe some states do or will reach the conclusion that it's appropriate. And then you also have the issue of even if states want to take them off the ballot, what is the right fact finder? Do they have to reach their own factual conclusion? And maybe the Supreme Court, you could even get to a point where the Supreme Court says, okay, there's no clear error in concluding that former President Trump did commit insurrection. But if an individual state procedure or state court concludes that he didn't conclude insurrection, is that a clear error? Maybe the facts they see as ambiguous enough that there's no clear error either way if it's done in a kind of professional fashion, then you might actually still have disparate outcomes on the back end of this decision, even if it ultimately sides with the Colorado Supreme Court. So I don't think this is the end of the legal proceedings around this matter. We're going to see still weeks and months of potential proceedings at the state level around this. Although worth noting, a lot of these are already underway, and uh, meaning it might not be you know take that long to resolve them when Supreme Court resolves the federal question behind it. Am I off base on this? Does this seem right to you? All? I mean, it just strikes me this isn't actually the the actual complete final step that people seem to be treating it as. I think that's right, and I will say. Uh, continuing the media criticism theme of the show so far that the the press could do a better job um the press and opinion writers in particular could do a, a better job of explaining this that's not true across the board but there has been a lot of coverage saying you know section three isn't a silver bullet um you know that kind of thing no one's saying that it is a silver bullet if you actually look at how any of this works it requires, as you say, um, it seems like it will require a, a significant amount of sort of state by state litigation because, um, and I'll point to the work here of um, Andy Craig, who's an election law scholar at Cato, um, who's been doing really, really good and helpful explanations on this, including uh, in some writing at a publication called The Unpopulist, basically breaking out down the fact that 
because state ballot access laws are so complicated and localized, there just isn't a way to kind of deal with this, you know, once and for all. Um, And so Craig has argued that, you know, even if you did get a Supreme Court ruling um, saying on the merits, Trump is disqualified um, under the 14th Amendment, that that might not actually really change the political landscape focused only on the counting of electoral votes because you could end up with, you know, blue states disqualifying, red states not, purple states not. That's kind of an interesting hypothetical. Another another counterpoint is, you know, what would happen, as you say, Scott, is you'd end up with some states disqualifying right out of the bat and then a bunch of litigation in other states. But I think that, you know, where I kind of come down is like, look, like, it, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be complicated. Um, and I worry that the court might look at that and say, well, that's a reason not to do it. And the counterpoint to this, um, and I'm drawing here on the uh, sort of originalist argument for disqualification from Will Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, which if, if the court actually disqualifies Trump will ha- have to be one of the most influential law review articles ever, is, you know, just because it's complicated isn't a reason not to do it if that's what the Constitution requires. Yeah, I mean, I think actually, and tell me if you guys disagree, I think the only way that this could maybe be resolved once and for all would be if the Supreme Court says under the 14th Amendment, Trump is not disqualified, which would be a truly horrifying conclusion, especially because that question is not really before the court to consider the issue on the merits. But I I believe that if they say as a matter of constitutional law, no, he's not disqualified, then there's nothing more to be done in terms of debating or litigating whether he should be removed from the ballot because states can't impose additional requirements for eligibility for the president beyond what is already existent in the Constitution. I mean, the the one thing that I do just want to say, because as I think we've demonstrated, these issues are so, so complicated, is um, we released a podcast that I would really commend to everyone where we had a very detailed discussion of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and talked through the complicated legal arguments. So I'd really recommend people who are interested in the nitty gritty of this look at the Lawfare podcast on this issue. I also just want to say um, one of the participants in that conversation is one of our resident uh, uh, Section 3 experts, Roger Parloff, a colleague of of ours, who identified, um, I was just checking the date, in June of 2022, that he was confident that it was extremely likely that at least one election official somewhere in the United States was going to find Trump disqualified under Section 3 and that it would be a complete and total disaster. So his his comments in the podcast that we just did recently on this really can make you quite frightened about all of the many possibilities of how this might go and how they all might be quite scary. So that's cheerful. <laughs> so I think you're right about where this the only way you can get final resolution of this, Natalie, with one exception. Because I actually think the final resolution comes later in the process, but it has a spot that makes people really uncomfortable, which is that if you don't get all 50 states on board with the same outcome, which seems kind of unlikely, then it goes to Congress. Congress has to figure out how it can evaluate eligibility for office, particularly through the much more constrained procedures we have installed now in response to the 2020 fiasco by the Electoral Count Reform Act, meaning that they have a much more constrained ability to do this. But nonetheless, they have to think about to what extent they can eligibility enters in. But I think the real point of resolution, honestly, is if former President Trump is still elected, 
And if he tries to assume office or does assume office on January 20th or 21st, the first point where I really see someone having legal standing to challenge his eligibility to hold office, which is what the Supreme Court is deciding on as a matter of federal law, is when he assumes office and does something. And then if it's some sort of enforcement action, some sort of policy action, there's lots of things the president does day to day where some plaintiff somewhere will have standing and can challenge his ability to actually hold office. And that's where the Supreme Court will have to intervene and decide it, including the factual determination of like, has he committed insurrection through whatever, at that point, you know, it'll go through the trial court, it'll go through the appellate court, it'll go to the Supreme Court. I'm not sure you get a full final resolution until you get there, as scary as that is. But I think that's like where the Supreme Court is most squarely teed up to have to resolve this issue. Let me go to one last aspect of this that's really been coming up. In the kind of last week or two where we've seen the petition for cert uh, and then the grant of cert, we have seen this like kind of tidal wave of opinions coming out of people all of a sudden having, mostly law professors, mostly all of a sudden having very strongly held views about the propriety of Section 3 as applied to former President Trump, but who haven't really necessarily always voiced these views vocally, or at least in op-ed format in the New York Times previously uh, and other outlets. But now we're seeing op-eds all over the place and lots of different outlets from lots of people saying, Supreme Court, you can't do this. Not necessarily even for legal reasons a lot of the time, (laughs) usually not for legal reasons. Very few of these people are willing to fully sign on to a legal critique of the case, although they may allude to various reasons why, you know, uh, they don't think ineligibility or disqualification is in play here. But essentially arguing that it's just too anti-democratic and as a matter of kind of first democratic principles, the Supreme Court should find a way out of it. Um, I think the more tortured, nuanced account of this may be Steve Vladek's account, which I think we may have mentioned on the podcast before, um, where he talks about where he thinks the law probably does say he should be disqualified, but it would be bad and that the kind of broader political values of the Supreme Court suggest that they're going to try and find a way to avoid reaching that outcome, which I think is probably correct. Um, and I've always thought is kind of correct around this, this issue, uh, if we're going to go quote our, our statements from a few months ago about predicting things. Quinta and Natalie, like, I want to put this to you. What do you make of these arguments like that are now really prevalent? Like, Frankly, the weight of academic commentary and opinion seems to be the Supreme Court should not disqualify from former President Trump, law be damned. Quint, I know you already have said you don't agree with that, but why are these arguments coming forth now and and what do they represent? I mean, like, it just strikes me as a weird moment we're living in to all of a sudden have a popular opinion flip so hard in this direction after the most vocal voices, frankly, for the last year have been people saying Trump is disqualified and we should be chasing this process. Frankly, I think some of it is that uh, you can always get readership for an op-ed that says something controversial and counterintuitive. On the substance, yeah, I think this is I think this is not just wrong but silly. And here is why. If you look at the actual legislative record around the 14th Amendment, and here I'm drawing on some scholarship done by uh Mark Graber, who we've published on Lawfare on these issues, um, and who has a, a lot more research that you can find on SSRN. Uh, the 14th Amendment was explicitly intended as a matter of democratic self-protection. It's an early example of what is sometimes called defensive democracy or militant democracy, meaning sort of restrictions within a democracy to ensure that, for example, a democracy isn't voted out of existence by a sort of pure majoritarian rule. And what I mean by that is that the goal was to prevent people who had shown they could not be trusted in leading a democracy forward from holding office again. And here I will point to a, a comment in 1866 on the floor of the Senate made by one excellently named Senator Waitman Willie, uh, who said of the amendment, 
It looks not to the past, but it has reference, as I understand it, wholly to the future. It is a measure of self-defense. It is designed to prevent a repetition of treason by these men, meaning former Confederates, and being a permanent provision of the Constitution, it is intended to operate as a preventative of treason hereafter. The whole point of this provision is that you cannot trust certain people who have shown that they will break their oath to the Constitution and to the United States to hold office going forward. And we have already seen this after after a court hearing that took place yesterday on the immunity issue in the D.C. Circuit. Trump went out there and told a bunch of reporters, if I'm you know, if this criminal trial goes forward, there will be bedlam. That is a threat. He, he is making a threat against democracy. All of these arguments about, oh, it would be undemocratic to disqualify him. It is also a threat to democracy if he runs and is not disqualified. It is a threat to democracy if he wins and if he doesn't win, because we know exactly what he will do because he already did it. Like This is just not a particularly hard question unless you take a very, very aggressive view of democracy as something that means only majority rule. And by the way, if you do take that view, then it's not really clear to me why you should accept the Electoral College either. So this whole thing just smacks to me of contrarianism, frankly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty going on here, or just omission of serious thought in some of these public comments. I would also like to just take the opportunity to plug Lawfare and pat ourselves on the back yet again, because Lawfare published pieces less than two weeks after the insurrection, evaluating whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would disqualify Trump. And I would just like to say that three years before it was cool, we were all over this. Well, I I will agree with all that. And I tend to agree with you, Quinta. Like, I I think the law is actually fairly clear on this. But I think these op-eds are capturing a general zeitgeist that is very real of what how the Supreme Court thinks about these things and thinks about their institutional role, the modern Supreme Court. And I do think there is they are going to be looking for an out of somewhere along these lines, despite the merits of the argument being relatively strong, certainly when you look back at historical purpose and intent of the people enacting this. I'm going to throw my plug out there where we're talking about our legacies. Months ago, I said, I think the easiest out for the Supreme Court is a bunch of 19th century statutes that Congress enacted removing disqualification. And I still think that's kind of the case. Nobody seems to agree with me. The Fourth Circuit, in fact, explicitly disagrees with you. The Fourth Circuit has said that 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 is not an accurate reading. So there you go. The Fourth Circuit, look out! Uh, I still think that's the easiest. I still think that's the easiest out for the Supreme Court. If not that, it'll be the self-executing yada 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 bit. But you know, you interpret a statute, you don't even have to touch the Fourteenth Amendment. I think that's going to look really appealing for the Supreme Court. But uh, no one seems to agree with me on that, so I'll just throw that out there. I think Adam Unikowski and his very good Substack said that he agrees with that as being the easiest out for the Supreme Court. But we will see. That said. We got a lot more to talk about in this domain in the months to come. I don't think this is going to be a story. Even the story is not going to end even at the Supreme Court rules. So uh, we'll have opportunities to revisit, no doubt. So speaking of gaps in the chain of command, we had an interesting news event, which um, had you all been on the Lawfare Slack channel, you could have um, watched unfold in real time. Um, So the news on this really trickled in. On January 5th, news broke that Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense, had been hospitalized at Walter Reed National Medical Center since Monday, so uh, for five days, 
All we really knew at the time was that he was experiencing complications after an elective surgery, but he was doing well. And the Pentagon did not want to release more information, it said, on the grounds of uh, patient privacy. Then the following day, we learned that actually we weren't the only ones who were just finding out about this because the Pentagon had not informed the White House, meaning National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, but also the president, about Austin's hospitalization for three days. Then they didn't tell Congress until Friday, 15 minutes before they released the public information about it. And there were a lot of DOD officials who only learned about it from the official statement that went out. Then we learned yesterday that the elective procedure that was referenced was treatment for prostate cancer, which was diagnosed in December. So, you know, predictably, there have been various calls for a response to this. Um, people are taking it very seriously. There have been calls for investigations and briefings and um, even firing. The Pentagon Press Association issued a really strongly worded statement about how this was an outrage and Austin has no claims to privacy in this situation. And of course, all of this is going on. The Secretary of Defense is not available, is being hospitalized. And we can talk further about what was happening during some of that time, which includes the fact that the Deputy Secretary was informed some of the time, but apparently not all of the time, that she was assuming some of the Secretary's responsibilities as sort of acting Secretary, but was not informed why for at least part of the time. This is all going on while American destroyers are in the Red Sea shooting down Houthi drones and um, American troops are being targeted in Syria and Iraq. So, you know, I, I think the very obvious question comes up, and I want to pose it to you, Quinta and Scott, how much does this matter? How outraged should we be or should we not be? Quinta, I'll start with you. I'm going to be completely honest. I have not thought so much about being outraged over this because I mostly find this like weirdly refreshing as a scandal. It's something that could have happened under any presidency. It could have been a West Wing plot. It could have been a Veep plot. It has nothing to do with, you know, encroaching far right authoritarianism. There's nothing Trumpy about it. It says a lot about the Defense Department, and I know that Scott has, has thoughts on that and the, the strangenesses of big organizations with big responsibilities. But mostly it's just like, it's kind of nice. I'm sort of grateful for the Pentagon for this bizarro little incident that totally did not need to happen and is completely unjustified. So that's kind of where I am. And I, I haven't gotten through that feeling of sort of warm enjoyment to actual substantive grappling with the issues presented uh, beyond that, like, this is bad. And clearly someone should have done something. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I tend to agree. You know, I agree with that. I agree with the refreshing nature of, of the scandal. And I think scandal is like a little strong. I think this was clearly a lapse in judgment on the part of Secretary Austin and other people who may have been involved, although it's a little unclear, like who knew about this, like his chief of staff was also sick and out of the office and out of touch during this period. Somebody was clearly communicating between him and the deputy secretary in some way that like some people knew what was happening, but not 
fully disclosing things, right? Like, so some people were clearly in the know. It's not clear how far it goes. All those people, this is a big lapse in judgment. You you shouldn't hide things like this when you're in the senior position of official of authority. That's certainly true. Um, there's a possibility it might have laid, violated some federal laws that says you're supposed to disclose senior vacancies in senior offices, but like there's no enforcement mechanism. It's just kind of a, one of these general administrative provisions. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but you should try and abide by the law if you're an executive branch official uh, and if you're the president. All that said, oh, and, and there's like, you know, protocol and other practices. It's all bad. It's all bad. Not good. The idea that this was like a major national security risk, I think, is overstated. Not not substanceless, but overstated. Like it would be a problem if a crisis were to happen, you could not find the Secretary of Defense, or he was unconscious during surgery. Um, this is true. This is also a perennial reality when your cabinet officials are constantly like overweight seventy year old men, <laughs> which which is which is the case. Like it's possible they will pass out, or like you know have a health crisis, or get in a car accident or their phones will die, right? Like all these things happen. There are procedures for dealing with them. It is a matter of delay. It would be inconvenient, would cause some confusion and additional stress. Even major international crises rarely happen at such a breakneck pace that those sorts of hiccups will make a big difference in the determination at the end. Where they do, decision-making is necessarily devolved much more lower to the ground because they're the only people who can react fast enough. Um, that's why you have things like unit self-defense, a principle that says like if somebody shoots at you, you shoot back and you don't have to ask for permission to do that. Essentially, there's a little more complicated than that, but that's, that's the basics of it. Um, so you know, I think there's a lot of people trying to make a lot more fire out of this incident where, you know, it's it's a fair amount of smoke to, through the ratio to fire. Not that there's no fire. It's a problem. It's bad judgment. I will also say on the other side of this, it's also like just very human and understanding. I mean, the man appears to be having prostate cancer. Uh, like that's scary and hard to deal with and a personal matter and can deal with like treatments that could be really uncomfortable and maybe personally a little embarrassing, right? Like I get this. I get the human side of it. And it's, you know, people who act so outraged and are so willing to slander people over stuff like this, um, even when I think they have some merit to their complaints, and I do in this case, you know, you can't lose sight of that human element on the empathy scale. And I empathize with uh, Secretary Austin, even if I do ultimately think this was a big lapse in judgment. So I agree. I very much agree with the human element of it. But I have to say, I, I find this a bigger deal than you guys do. Um, I think that it is not only a lapse of judgment, I think there seems to have been not only just omissions, but sort of affirmative efforts to sort of hide what was going on. I mean, especially I was really disturbed by the fact that um, it seems that Deputy Secretary Hicks was not fully informed of what was going on. And you know, at one point she had been, she was on vacation in Puerto Rico at the time that all of this was going on. And at one point she had uh, reportedly offered to return to Washington and was told that it wasn't necessary because Secretary Austin would be well enough to assume his duties the following day. And I believe in the timeline, if I remember correctly, he was not actually released from the hospital the following day. So, you know, what's the harm in saying he's in the hospital, we're pretty sure he's going to be fine tomorrow and can resume his duties. But sure, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for you to return back to Washington to make it very clear who is in charge here in the event that anything goes wrong. You know, I, I Scott, I think you're right that it's unlikely there would be the type of catastrophe that would require such rapid response that someone wouldn't be able to find someone 
who was eligible to act as acting secretary if Secretary Austin was unavailable. But it's not a good look. And it's not, you know, it, it's it's not a great idea for in the midst of a national security crisis to have to have some people dedicated to the task of trying to figure out where the secretary is and who is responsible if he can't be found. He's, you know, he's also sixth in line in the presidential line of succession. I think this is this is a big problem. I, I do. I agree with you. I do understand the the human element of it. But, you know, he's he has a prominent public role. And when you take on these roles, unfortunately, you give up a lot of your rights to be a human being and to have your privacy respected. It's just the nature of the job. It's why, you know, I never want to be Secretary of Defense. But I think that it's it's really part of the responsibilities that you take on. I think that's fair, um, just despite my flippancy at the beginning of this segment. I mean, what what it makes me wonder about is I have seen some arguments that this merits a resignation from Austin. And whether or not that should happen is one question. But another question is just given the holdup on nominations in the Senate, whether the kind of intransigence of the Senate here is actually going to be a real problem that will keep him in his job, because it seems unlikely to me that if he did resign, that the administration will be able to get a Senate-confirmed successor. Maybe that's not a problem, since we all know how flexible, for better or worse, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act is. But I do wonder whether that might be a factor in Austin holding on to his job. It's definitely possible. Although, you know, I will say the defense, uh, the armed services committees, like now that they've broken the Tuberville hold, are moving things faster and have a historical record, particularly around secretaries of defense. They tend to be one of the first people confirmed for a new administration. They don't tend to hang out there that long. So it'd be a little bit of a broach of a norm that's, I think, still persists in kind of this more partisan era to really hold it up for a long time. Unlike, for example, like most State Department appointees that SFRC has been sitting on for for a while now in a lot of different capacities, uh, a lot, not most, but a number of State Department employees uh, or de- appointees. So, you know, I think they could get someone. I, I'm not, I'm just not sure that this actually warrants that strong a response, if I'm being completely honest. I think it was a clear lapse in judgment. I think he needs to take responsibility for it. You know, if other, if it were combined with other questions about his duty, it could be a straw that broke the camel's back. But I think most people have a pretty strong positive view of Austin as Secretary of Defense. I don't think we've seen a lot of these scandals or mishaps, despite being like a pretty tense moment for the Defense Department, certainly the last several months. So I I don't know. I'm just not quite there yet. The one thing I will say is like this reflects, and Quinta alluded to this, so I'll throw this out there. It's like this to me, the first, my first thought when I heard about the story is like, man, this is such a DOD story <laughs> because there is like one aspect of, of DOD institutional culture. And I say this to somebody who worked closely with the Department of Defense. I love my colleagues at the Department of Defense. I think they're great. And this is a virtue in many environments, but folks at DOD, part of the institutional culture is very much a take your orders and run with them and keep your eyes down and like focused on the task ahead without a lot of 
critical engagement sometimes with uh, the broader decisions and context in which they're being Scott made. Scott is trying so hard to be nice. I am because I because I genuinely love the Department of Defense and the people who work there are wonderful. And I, this may be unfairly besmirching them because maybe everyone involved in this was like an outside political appointee, and so blaming Department of Defense institutional culture for this is not is misplaced. I totally accept that's a possibility, but like I could see this happening, and I've heard and encountered similar things happening at a lower level at a unique level of the Department of Defense. And and I do think it is like there's a a, a resistance to questioning sometimes. It, it comes in with this, that this would have been a good moment for somebody, even a career person who's in this group conversation that actually knew what was happening to say, hey, guys, yes, maybe the Secretary of Defense gave this order. Or that's how we're understanding it. But maybe we should go back and say, do we really want to do this? Here are our concerns. Maybe that happened in this case. I don't know. Again, this is a little bit unfair for me to speculate in these cases. But the same thing that can make the Department of Defense so effective in so many different environments sometimes, I think, can lead to weird moments like this where you have a lot of lack of critical engagement around certain senior decisions. Um, And that would have been a good moment to exercise a little critical judgment for not just the secretary, but for people around him as well. And some people may have professional consequences for that. And maybe that is appropriate, even if Austin himself doesn't lose his job. Maybe other people need to take a little bit of a hit for this, Um, because it's not just a lapse of judgment on his part, it's other people as well. Yeah. So I don't disagree that this doesn't warrant his firing or resignation. And, you know, there are remedies that can come out in terms of, I I think already the Biden administration has, uh, through the chief of staff, issued more explicit guidance to cabinet members, et cetera. But I just want to say one, one thing in response to your points, Scott. I think one of the things that's really damaging here is that, you know, Austin was already known as a person who really did put his head down and worked and was very well respected. I mean, he was confirmed as Secretary of Defense 93 to 2 on January 22nd, 2021. You know, that's stunning. He's he's very widely respected. I have no reason to think that shouldn't be the case. The problem when something like this happens is that people are going to start wondering if the fact that he is, you know, not out there as a partisan political hack um, in the public eye and is instead working very hard with his head down is something to be worried about. You know, I, I think you're inviting concerns that the lack of transparency or the the lack of drama is because there are more things that are being hidden. And I think that that can be really damaging. Well, Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our time together this week to hash through these important issues, but I think we'll have time to revisit a number of them at least in weeks to come. Until then, however, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the days to come until we are back in your ears. Quinto, what do you have for us this week? My object lesson is tunnels. I am tunnel-filled. Tunnels are all that I care about. There are two tunnel stories that I would like to share with you all. The first is the story of the woman on TikTok, who some of you may have heard of, who is building a tunnel under her house for ambiguous reasons. Um, I have been following this saga since the summer with uh, total fascination, wondering why she had not been shut down. And she has been shut down. Um, She is not in a rural area, as I kind of assumed, uh, but she is in Northern Virginia. in the quite built up town of Herndon, Virginia. Um, And she is no longer building her tunnel. 
there is some delightful reporting on this in the Washington Post, which we will link in the show notes. Um, so that is the first tunnel story. The second tunnel story is the story of the tunnel under the Chabad headquarters in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, which I will just read the New York Times headline about this, which I think kind of captures it. And I quote, secret synagogue tunnel sets off altercation that leads to nine arrests. Um, as far as I can tell, this seems to have to do with a splintering within the Chabad movement. Um, I confess I do not understand the specifics of the religious dispute that led to the construction of the tunnel, nor do I fully understand why the tunnel was built in the first place. The reporting is notably light on this, um, but I am so stoked for the inevitable 30,000 word long read about this in New York Magazine. Please give it to me. I cannot wait any longer. Um, and because all good things come in threes, I assume this means that there will be more tunnel news to come shortly. I can only hope that it measures up to these previous two stories. It's Scott. He's sticking a tunnel under his house. That's right. Honestly, I, the thing about these stories I find so amazing is that they thought they could do this without some sort of permit. It's insane. I'm trying to renovate my That's bathroom what's in a very minor way, and I <laughs> it's taking weeks to get me a permit for that. <laughs> if I were trying to build a tunnel under my house, I mean, good lord. Uh, but who knows? Who knows? Well, for my object lesson, I am also going to go to Twitter or X uh, for a story that I discovered there uh, in one of the these days fairly rare occasions where I spent time flipping around the website because it is the most 40-year-old dad story, something I will be imminently uh, in the weeks to come that I've ever encountered. When you turn, people may not realize is that as you approach and turn 40 and you are a dad, you become obsessed with history, particularly usually Civil War or World War II history. World War I really gets short drift in this for some reason. I don't understand why. But or in some cases, Revolutionary War history and somebody who calls himself the civil rights lawyer on Twitter uh, is at John Bryan with a Y Esquire because uh, he's a civil rights lawyer, I assume, and appears to do some pretty interesting work uh, in that space is just hit a gold mine in that he appears to have bought an old house somewhere in Virginia or West Virginia. I'm not clear exactly. It is absolutely gorgeous, an absolute spot up in the mountains and has concluded with the help of a local historian who he adorably is touring and this historian appears to be fairly elderly and so he's touring in a wheelchair around this house as he did it the historian had a theory that this house was actually the last remaining or one of the last remaining log based revolutionary war forts and that they just took this fort and converted it into the house by putting plaster over it and making it look like in like kind of 19th century plantation house and so this guy god bless him he ripped the walls down and tore them out and discovered that in fact there is a revolutionary war fort underneath all of it and so he has restored the interior of his home so it looks like this Revolutionary War fort, and he has found just a wealth of artifacts from this spot that apparently has been inhabited continuously since, you know, before the United States existed. He finds stuff from like the 1740s and 1730s in here. It is truly amazing. And the guy is quite the amateur historian. His thread, now that I've discovered, or his, his feed is like full of random other finds at West Virginia uh, thrift stores uh, and antique stores that he then traces down the history of. Um, one was like this chair that keeps popping up in photos like Forrest Gump of famous people from the 19th century, which is just absolutely fascinating. I cannot get enough of it. It's great. This guy needs to have a show on the History Network or something. Um, I'm rooting for you, John Bryan, civil rights lawyer. But until then, check out his Twitter thread. It is truly, truly phenomenal stuff. Strongly, strongly recommend. Natalie, what do you have for us today? Well, as I was um, thinking through all of the issues for our first segment on the ICJ, um, I was reminded of how complicated all of this law is and understand that it is um, 
poorly portrayed in the press, both because it is it can lend itself easily to sensationalism and because it is very complicated. I was reminded of a really excellent book that I would like to recommend to people, uh, which is called East West Street. Um, it's by Philippe Sands, and it is a, an eminently readable part memoir, part explanation of the evolution of the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity in the law right around the Holocaust period. But the discussion all begins with um, Sands's investigation of his family's history going back to Lviv in uh, modern day Ukraine. So it's a very interesting story. It's much more accessible than, you know, reading through a casebook that tries to explain to you the legal concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity and how there's actually a really interesting tension between the two concepts because there were concerns that coming up with a crime of genocide would impose on people a group identity that might detract from what should be an equal concern in the law about just mass killing of individuals, even if they're not part of a group. So in any case, I would really recommend that people who are interested in sort of understanding the law a little bit better, give that one a read. It's East West Street by Philippe Sands. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including season two of The Aftermath, which premiered but days ago and will be coming to your podcatcher in the weeks to come. While you're at it, be sure to visit, visit us on Twitter or X at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a reading or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast, among other special benefits. Visit lawfaremedia.org support for more details. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.